The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, on behalf Demo of Detroit, beats on the hey, we want to present these buffs to our governor, hey. Big Gretch. Throw the buffs on her face, because that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stress. We got Big Gretch. Woo. You can find her in the press under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Throw the buffs on her face, because that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Gretch. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Come on. Big Gretch and this bitch playing no roles. At Excuse all. all the cussing. That's just how I get my flow on. For real. If you want to leave the state, you can stay gone. But right now, Big Gretch said stay home. All that protesting was irrelevant. irrelevant. Big Gretch ain't trying to hear y'all or the president. How we going to take orders from a non-resident? Talking about it safe, but he ain't coming with the evidence. Uh-oh. Big Gretz got him shook now. When it's all over, you invited to the cookout. When it's all over, you deserve to get took out. Big Gretz with the bucks on on the lookout. Uh, and she doing it for Michigan, so when she hit the stand, everybody should be listening. She on that pair of bucks with the ice in them glistening. On behalf of the whole Detroit mission. Throw the bucks on her face, cause that's Big Gretz. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Gretz. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Gretz. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretz. Throw the bucks on her face, cause that's Big Gretz. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Gretz. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Gretz. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretz. Big Gretz.
Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and um, we're going to have an interesting conversation uh, with noted historian Samuel Redman this hour. He has a new book called The Museum, A Short History of Crisis and Resilience. Normally, we think of uh, museums as a place to go and study all kinds of foibles that have happened uh, throughout history and we don't always think about when those foibles happened to the museum but sam redman did and he joins me by phone to talk about it good morning sam and welcome to the show good morning it's so great to be here um let's talk about this a little bit because a lot of times um the the kinds of things that museums are are known for storing artifacts about battles and plagues and all kinds of things that have happened in history, uh, significant accomplishments and, and other things, um, are also things that affect the operation of the museum itself. What made you think about that side of it? Absolutely. It's a, that's a great way to frame this as a, uh, an opener. You're, you're totally right. I think we think of museums as being these sort of uh, static institutions, almost these uh, bubbles that are maybe encased in amber outside of the bounds of time. But you're totally right. Pandemics, wars, uh, uh, financial calamity, those all impact museums as well. So if you go back to January 2020, just before the pandemic really hit North America, I was in a conversation with a publisher about possibly writing a book on the present state of museums and, and what museums might be in the future. I walked away from that conversation not really knowing what the book would look like. But then when the pandemic hit, I couldn't help but think about how the 1918 uh, influenza epidemic had uh, you know, struck similarly in unexpected ways. And I thought, well, how did museums respond to that moment of crisis? And from that sort of initial exploration, uh, a book on the history of museums and crisis was born. You know, what's interesting about that, Sam, is in, in some ways I did sort of the same thing. Um, in, in January of 2020, I had moved my studio home and was planning to work from home. And then about six weeks later, everybody on the planet was planning to work from home. But that's a whole nother <laughs> That's right. a whole nother show. Um, but one of the things that I did was I looked back and did some reading about the uh, the uh, Spanish flu in 1918. And I was surprised to learn a couple of things. One is that it dragged out for about three years. Right. And so people who were talking early in the COVID-19 pandemic in the first few weeks and months saying, well, this will be over by summer. It'll be over by next spring. I, I was thinking to myself, I'm not so sure, you know, if, if 1918 is, is any indication. And the other thing that struck me, and maybe maybe you know some of this much better than I do actually being a historian, but... The reactions by people then were very similar to the reactions that we were seeing in contemporary times. The closing of stadiums and theaters and museums and and uh, other places where people gathered publicly. And uh, the notices were all the same. 
about, you know, keeping a distance, staying in, you know, sort of, you know, quarantining yourself. And and I just, I found the similarities to be um, really haunting. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll just build on that, that uh, I couldn't help but continue to think of those analogies when I was thinking back through uh, the, the story. Um, there are some expressions responding to other famous cliches that history doesn't necessarily repeat, but it certainly does rhyme. Uh, that, <laughs> I like that. You know, there's an instructional utility for us to think about these uh, episodes, but we have to do so, I think, from a holistic manner and in a way that includes lots of different uh, 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 you know, points of evidence and points of view. So, just real quick, it, it was is remarkable it, to me. Is it is oh, it worth ahead. is it worth noting, Sam, that maybe if history doesn't repeat itself, maybe we do. Sure, and uh, you know, along those lines, uh, in 1918 through 1920, as this pandemic is uh, a, a reality, frankly, a lot of people's attention are on uh, is on the World War. And when, you know, soldiers going away for the World War and, and, and coming back. Uh, and then at the same time, there's an extraordinary amount of labor unrest, record-setting number of strikes, because you have the buildup for the First World War and all of these factories and, and jobs that then largely go away at the end of the war. And uh, at about the same time, you have an extraordinary amount of racial unrest in the United States. You have uh, white supremacist mobs in major cities throughout the, the North, especially, but around the country that are engaging in terroristic attacks against black Americans, including black uniformed veterans. So in some ways, it was really striking to think of the co-joining of many different crises that, that come together at one moment that impact cultural institutions, that impact all sorts of uh, uh, things. And I wanted to draw out the idea that museums are not divorced from those happenings, that they're, they're living in the world and, and experiencing it, too. Something that, that I found really interesting, and, and I imagine that you did, too, um, was that during the pandemic, about six months in, museums started figuring out ways to use Zoom and and other online platforms to do virtual tours and and to continue to operate in in some capacity, which was something they wouldn't have been able to do in 1918. Right, and museums, even in in that and earlier eras, they're they're again and again when crisis moments come, the 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 successful institutions tend to be the ones that do try to find creative solutions um, that, that are able to, you know, find a, a, a collaborative and, and creative path forward, but one that remembers sort of the core mission of the institution. So towards the end of the book, you're, you're absolutely right. I look at the digital turn that many museums have taken in the, in the last few years, uh, but, but especially, you know, during the pandemic. I mean, it really served in some ways as an opportunity, as challenging as it was, to reach audiences in a new way. You know, I've talked to many different museum staffers and curators who'll note that maybe they operate what they felt like was a smaller or a regional institution, and now they might do programs that get national or international followings. You know, that if, if you do a topic on the history of automobiles in, you know, 
previously maybe that would bring in a, a local audience of interested enthusiasts but imagine if you were to open that up nationally or internationally what types of conversations you could have well yeah and i was thinking about uh you know people who would never travel to paris and go to the louvre but maybe could tour the louvre virtually well and what's interesting is that i i talked to a curator who um uh for at the sf moma uh, in San Francisco, the Museum of Modern yeah. Art there, who who reflected that when the first time the museum came out with a CD-ROM in 1995, some people were wringing their hands and saying, "Well, shoot, this is it. This is you know, the museum. That's it. No one's going to want to come to the museum now because they'll be able to see the the paintings on their uh, 1990s you know level computer monitors." Now, of course, that's the exact opposite ended up happening, right? That um, once you put these materials out there, uh, it, it creates interest. People want to visit their favorite painting that they learned about in art history class or that they have an affinity for one type of uh, story and they, they want to see that special exhibit or, or something and they can learn about it online. So uh, sometimes these predictions, sort of doomsday predictions, haven't, haven't played out as they relate to museums. Now, it, there are a number of things that can impact a museum, and, and we've been talking about the pandemic, and of course what happens there is people sure. are ordered or asked to stay in and not go out. So, you know, visitation drops off. People just, they're not going to concerts, they're not going to museums, you know, they're, they're just not out doing things. And that has an impact. But it's a very different kind of impact when something actually threatens or damages a museum's collections, like a fire or an earthquake, and and valuable art is lost. What do museums do to recover from those kinds of events? Right. So the opening of the book opens with this really devastating fire uh, around the end of the Civil War, that destroyed much of the Smithsonian Institution. And what was remarkable to me is that if you look at sort of the long trajectory of that story, it's clearly a disaster. The New York Times describes it as a national calamity the following day. But it allows the Smithsonian to really rethink its place as an institution, and professional sciences are, are coming in. Uh, new collections are acquired. They put electric lights in the gallery for the first time. Uh, they start fireproofing buildings more efficiently. In many respects, the Smithsonian comes back stronger following this awful incident. But museums are committed to, to thinking about how to respond to fires and floods and the inevitable damage that this does to collection collections. One thing that the book argues after taking a close look at museum-related stories as it related to Katrina and to Hurricane Sandy, one of the things that I think we need to talk about is how to train staff at all levels, not just curators and conservators who care for these objects, but also security staff, uh, custodial staff, who frankly are often some of the ones who step up in the event of a, a large uh, sweeping fire, as in California. Uh, I mean, it was groundskeeping crew and, and custodial crew that essentially saved the Getty Museum uh, in, in uh, one of the last major wildfires. So we should think about providing resources to those individuals and perhaps free training 
uh, to handle objects and to care for objects in disasters, uh, you know, such as offered by the Mellon Foundation uh, at all levels to make museums more resilient. More about museums with historian and author Samuel Redman straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom Attorney General stuff? Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen... We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi 
gov slash ag complaints okay all right and dina where do i file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month does your office have a website for that okay mom i'm hanging up now i'm michigan attorney general dana nessel visit mi.gov slash ag complaints for your connection to consumer protection Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More about museums with historian and author Samuel Redman, straight ahead. What is it about an old painting that that gives it the value that that makes us want to keep it in a museum and go visit it? Yeah, and there are great debates about this, even as yeah. far back as the World War One era. Like, what is you know what is really the purpose of it? Is it that it is a, a beautiful thing, something that we can that, that gives us joy? That you know that uh, that we can learn about the painter's life or, or what the painter was looking at. Um, it's it's certainly all of these things to a certain degree, but. Even around the the time of World War One and this crisis era for museums uh, of of the 1918 influenza and all of the many things that we've touched on that were going on in that era, museum thinkers were saying, you know, hey, wait, let's pump the brakes here a little bit uh, and think about, you know, we're not just trying to acquire the best, most spectacular thing. We're trying to acquire things that can serve our community in important sorts of ways that serve an educational function, that serve a research function. And, you know, how does it serve a need as opposed to just being a spectacular thing? And this, in some ways, was in contrast to the earlier eras in the late 19th and early 20th century, where there's a lot of urban boosterism going on. Cities like Detroit and Chicago are growing and competing with one another. And along with that, they want to establish the biggest and the best the best libraries, the best, uh, I mean, even the best roads and bridges, but also the, the best museums were seen as being part of a, a, a city's rise to national and international prominence. But by the 1910s and 1920s, people are starting to rethink that a little bit. And education more and more starts to become foregrounded in, in the story. And, and again, disasters tend to be a moment where that's uh, clarifying potentially for an institution. Why do we need this painting? What is this collection all about? You know, what's, it, what's interesting is in um, archaeological digs, it's always really exciting when artifacts are found. You know, old clay pots are dug up and they're cleaned up and put under glass in a museum. And then all of a sudden, you know... Tom Sumner comes walking up to this this glass display, and I look at the 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 pot, and it it doesn't really move me. It doesn't have any real significance. But if I see it in its natural habitat, it right. has more value. If if I'm standing there when it's dug up, or if I'm standing in an area that has that has been dug up and and I see these bits and pieces and and I can sort of imagine from them what life was like in this little village or settlement uh, it it has so much more value 
have we learned over the last hundred years plus that how we display artifacts is directly proportionate to its value to education and to being kept? I think some. I think there's definitely been a, a great evolution on this. And, does it, does it uh, make sense what I'm what I'm saying? It, yeah, it, absolutely. I, I don't yeah. know if I asked it very well, Sam. But. No, I think uh, yeah, I, I think that's true. That that a lot of people um, uh, uh, feel a connection with history, maybe more so at a, a historic site or uh, uh, out, you know, seeing a, a piece of architecture that's sort of living in the universe. And in writing my last book, I, I talked to a lot of Native American uh, thinkers and curators and artists who pushed me to think differently about museum objects and reminded me that if you have a thing that you carry with you uh, and, and it means a lot to you and, and you sort of uh, ascribe a, a, a certain uh, feeling to it, it's it's a living thing. It's It's a as much as other living things that it, it, it sort of carries a, a life force of its, of its own. And, and, you know, in thinking like that, it, I think pushes us to think differently about these objects and what they are and, you know, what they're capable of, of potentially doing, but you're totally right. This is, is in many ways antithetical to, to traditional museum practice, which was about in, you know, in many respects, decontextualizing that remarkable, Egyptian statue and taking it, you know, through a Harvard exhibition, right, and then putting it on display in uh, Boston and taking a picture of it and putting it in your art history textbook. That has a practice of of decontextualizing those objects from real life. Well, and, and it's understandable of, yeah. that you know curators would would have an artifact and they would try to get it in as pristine a condition as possible and protect it from any aging or damage. But in the process of doing that, that decontextualization occurs. And and to me, it, it, it kind of makes the artifact seem uh, uh, kind of random. Right. And, and I think a lot of the part of the challenge for museums in, in the 20th century has been how do we tell different stories? You know, how, how do we not just sort of show these spectacular, isolated things? Let me give an interesting example from history that probably not a lot of people know about, but was impactful at the time. Sure. So one of the outcomes of the Great Depression, again, much like today with the economic calamities, museums were forced to let staffers go, and they were forced to cut back on exhibit plans and on, new, you know, new... Uh, expeditions to find objects out in the world. But one thing that they were able to do was take advantage of the New Deal, the uh, 1930s government initiatives that hired out-of-work or uh, underemployed workers to do all sorts of different tasks. And they hired, you know, craftsmen, carpenters, they hired artists, they hired writers, many, many other types of people to work in museums. One of the programs was called the Museum Extension Project. And this was pretty revolutionary at the time. It sort of sounds like a small thing, but they created really great professional-grade dioramas depicting moments in history. And these were then shipped for free, essentially, to museums around the country to spruce up corners of exhibit halls that maybe didn't have anything previously. 
And these dioramas were really popular, especially with kids, to see, you know, sort of the objects that you're seeing in museums sort of in action in a way that they hadn't previously been displayed. Of course, this is an era where radio was coming on and, and museums are starting to interact and engage with radio programs um, to a lesser extent, newsreels and, and film. But it's well before, like documentary film or, or the Internet and, and how you learn about these things. Uh, sometimes you only have but few opportunities. So something like a cool new diorama, miniature sort of story about the past was seen as this effective thing. And that really arose out of the challenge of the Great Depression. I, I saw something that was um, really quite interesting at, uh, at Graceland. Mm. And they, they did something with the display of uh, jumpsuits that Elvis used to wear in performance. <laughs> and there was this whole right. row of these jumpsuits. Now, why I would walk up and down an aisle of clothing under glass is one of the great mysteries of all time. Sure. But they brought them to life with little videos in each display. So then it didn't just become some clothes hanging on a mannequin. You could actually see, oh, there's Elvis wearing that. Right. And he's performing. And they did the same thing in the auto section where they recovered these cars that Elvis had once owned. But there was a video next to every single car. So you saw him driving that car. And it really made what was kind of a static and and potentially not very interesting collection to life. That's a great example. And one of the things that I'd point out with that story is that if you go back, you know, there are these amazing costume and uh, clothing and, and textile collections that the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and elsewhere, you know, at the Michigan Historical Society and, and historical uh, societies, Jack, for example. Jackie Kennedy. You know, yes, there Jackie was a, Kennedy's There was a dresses. big display that went around just recently, and they did the same thing with video right. so you could see and, her. But, you know, if you go back to that same collection, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago, you probably couldn't exactly have predicted their ability in the future to use the collections in this way. Part of the sort of permanent preservation aspect of it is that we don't exactly know what people in the future will find, you know, important and interesting and exciting about history. But you're, you're sort of trying to make some of your best guesses based on what you think is important or was important at the time or curators are, are especially working now to uncover and document voices that have been historically marginalized and, and bring those stories out. But the, the evolution of technology there is, a, is an important uh, aspect to this. And just one more quick anecdote that your story reminded me of. Yeah, you know, part of this is about uh, you know, updating museum spaces and, and bringing them well into the 21st century. But how can you do that at places, you know, my story is mostly about museums in the United States, but at the Louvre, for example, I understand that they, in the the four-week really strict closure uh, where museums were just unable to operate other than a few staffers, they were able to do months, if not years, worth of maintenance work and updating exhibitions you know, basically executing a five-year plan in a couple of a couple of uh, weeks 
because they didn't have the foot traffic that they normally have to do. Imagine you have to close things down piecemeal, piece by piece in a major institution like that. So again and again, you see that, you know, these crisis moments give museums and other cultural institutions an opportunity to, to rethink and in some ways address things that they've maybe wanted to do for some time but haven't been able to. You know, I heard a piece uh, a while back, a few years ago, about the opening of a museum in New Orleans called uh, the Museum of the Abnormal. And they were talking to people on the street about this new museum. And this one guy from New Orleans said, a museum of the abnormal in New Orleans, he says, seems like we ought to have a museum of the normal. Right. that I was thinking about something that we were talking almost exclusively about museums that um, that preserve and display historical artifacts. But there are museums that are much more contemporary than that. Sure. And uh, that, you know, there again is another turn that in in some ways was born out of the the crisis of the Depression era uh, and then also World War Two. I mean, in the middle of the 20th century, there is a push for uh, art museums uh, really to start to, to, you know, not just prize the work of uh, European artists in particular, but European artists that had been, you know, dead for a number of years and, and they're sort of old master status was seen as as sort of set in in stone uh and and then eventually museums and collectors start to get a taste for living artists and uh artists in in more recent history but the 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 trouble is there that sometimes living artists want to say provocative things sometimes they want to protest um and uh it in some ways forces museums to enter political territory where they hadn't previously. And museums find, again, maybe a little counterintuitive. Uh, uh, sometimes museum directors want to avoid all controversy. It sort of seems like a bad thing. But ultimately, the museums that sort of lean into that press, that lean into the controversy a little bit, like, come see for yourself, see this apparently controversial art, that uh, that that ends up being uh, a quite successful strategy for institutions like the MoMA in New York and others. I think that, by and large, museums today are much more committed to addressing topics related to current events than they were 100 years ago, let's say. Yeah, agreed. And and um, there's something I want to make sure we get to before we run out of time, Sam, is in your book, and again, the book is called the museum short history of crisis and resilience did you find that there was built into the mission statement of virtually all museums that creates a dedication to that resilience that you discovered in the wake of some of these uh, various crises yeah i think that uh now it's an interesting time for museums because i think museums now with the reckoning as it's related to to race and racism in this country and colonialism have been rethinking a lot of things like the seal uh or the flag of the state of massachusetts where where i live for example is is uh, uh, getting a long overdue uh uh refresh 
uh, and and mission statements too are are being clarified and and updated in in many respects. But I, I do think it is uh, crucial. We've seen some episodes recently where um, uh, museums have sold paintings or or sold other objects from their collections, uh, sometimes in a way that. Uh, is outside of the bounds of of professional practice and more of a cash grab type of style. And they've been censured by professional organizations. Um, so it it is the case that uh, that there, you know it's uh, it's sort of this long range preservation and um, there's a core aspect of the mission there. But museums need to be about something more. Uh, they need to be about uh, uh, serving the community and uh, a broader educational aspect, but also learning learning about the world. And I think especially in this era in which we're thinking about fake news and uh, fact-checking uh, and uh, uh, trust in institutions and in science, museums are still seen as uh, by popularly as trustworthy outlets. And before the pandemic, attendance was hitting uh, all-time high at many institutions. So I think it's a really important conversation if we're going to think about reestablishing some trust and uh, reaching out to people that, that maybe, you know, uh, should learn about the world and, and other cultures uh, and, and uh, uh, science and, and people through time. These aren't perfect institutions. They, they need to be reformed and, and critiqued by people who care about them deeply, but there's a lot of great potential there still. Let's talk about, um, if we can, just for a, a minute or two, although it, it deserves a much longer conversation, some of the um, uh, changes that we've seen in historical landmarks. Now, I know your book is primarily about museums and, and sure. the role they play as American cultural institutions. But I'm thinking about Civil War statues being removed and people saying, well, we need to tuck them away in a museum somewhere. What what about, um, you know, historic accuracy versus um, contemporary sensitivity. Absolutely. And I think something that often gets lost in this conversation, sometimes not, but, uh, you know, that historical markers are, are rarely sort of, there's really this like authentic or originalism that that's really there, right? They're, they're, they're almost always sort of these mythologized depictions of past events that are you know, brought in by... especially are, you know, right. overly dramatized, you know, with the uh, uh, military hero on a horse and, you know, those right. kinds of images. So I personally, from my perspective as a quote-unquote professional historian or an academic historian, I'm skeptical of the claim that these are about removing history. Um, but I think we can, we can, we, what we can do are find better, more honest, more worthy depictions of our history that, that, uh, you know, potentially uh, that, that showcase that. And museums have tried, and, and other uh, institutions, too, have tried to contextualize these uh, uh, statues that are left in place in many cases. And, and certainly there are going to be, you know, monuments and, and places that, you know, for example, that, that plantations where, where uh, people were, humans were enslaved, uh, are are still uh, you know operating as, as historic sites, and we need to talk about that honestly and openly. And just to tie the two uh, things together, 
in my book, I do look at the example of the Teddy Roosevelt statue that uh, was, uh, until recently, outside of the American Museum of Natural History. And I argue that, you know, even though the statue's been there for a couple of generations, it's a a pretty unfortunate and racist and, and inaccurate depiction of Roosevelt. And there are many other ways in which Roosevelt was connected to the Natural History Museum. There's a whole hall that's named after him. Uh, but the museum, like you say, was shipped off to another museum in the Dakotas where they're going to try to contextualize it and, and uh, talk about it to visitors in, in a different sort of way and frame this and use it as a, a touch, touching off point for, for critical conversations. But it's a difficult thing for museums to, to reconsider, right, that, you know, uh, some of these historical materials in, in their own foundations, quite literally, are in need of an update. Well, Sam, this is a fascinating conversation, and I, I, I can't believe how fast the time has gone. I feel like we've just scratched the surface. What's what's next for you? Well, I have uh, just in the last year had a, a couple of books come out that I've been working on for some time. And not to sound like a politician or that's retiring or anything, but I'm going to spend some time with my family <laughs> for uh, the next foreseeable future. I'm going to uh, travel to the Midwest, and uh, perhaps predictably, I'm going to soak in some of the museums that I haven't been able to visit uh, for the fu- foreseeable future and uh, talk to anyone who's interested in, in these stories. So I appreciate the chance to have this conversation. You just grabbed one of my favorite political dodges. <laughs> Uh, we, we joke about that every time that comes up in a legitimate news story, we have a little fun with that on my show. Right, that, that's right. Just, um, and and nobody ever asks the family if they want them to spend more time. Right. With that's them. a good point. I should actually <laughs> ask my kid how many museums he wants to be dragged through this summer. Maybe there's a limit, but uh, right now he's way into the airplane museums and the dinosaur museums. So we'll we'll be having some fun. Well, the book is called The Museum, A Short History of Crisis and Resilience by Samuel J. Redman. Um, and, and Sam, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Um, do you have a website that you'd like to share? I uh, am on the UMass uh, uh, faculty page, and I also I have a Twitter that is at Samuel J. Redman. And like you said, I'm the author of a few books about the history of museums, and uh, I teach at the University of Massachusetts. I'm really, really happy to, to be here as an intellectual home. So I hope people will check out that work. Well, Sam, thanks so much, and keep up the good work. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Great. That was, uh, as I mentioned, Samuel J. Redman. He is Associate Professor in the Department of History at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and the author of um, a new book that's called The Museum, Short History of Crisis and Resilience. And with that, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. Tom Sumner 
Darkwing Duck here, and every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Cloth or disposable? Paint or wallpaper? Yellow or green? Babies come with lots of decisions. Crib or bassinet? Rocker or glider? So when it comes to protection against diseases, go with the safest, most effective choice. Vaccination. To protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases like measles, meningitis, and whooping cough. That's why nearly all parents choose it. Stroller or carriage? Basketball or soccer? So get all the recommended vaccinations for your baby by age two. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. Justin or Justine. Immunizations help give you the power to protect your baby. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Why are we stopping? We're going to be late for the show. Mom, Dad, we got to get gas. Not here, you're not. This place is charging an arm and a leg. Look, 
These days, price swings of 30 or 40 cents per gallon aren't unusual, but when a gas station charges a price way above the price at similar stations, that could be gas gouging. Michigan gas stations sell the correct quality and quantity of gas most of the time, but when a station does try to illegally take advantage of drivers, my office is here to stop them. Stop attorney generaling! We got a concert to get to! I hope she doesn't sit next to us. Narc. This is Attorney General Dana Nessel. If you have information about potential gas gouging, call my office or go online at michigan.gov slash AG. Put those away. We're at a gas station. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Milestones are never really recognized right away. It takes uh, oh, 50, 60 years before people realize what an achievement it is. Like, um, take for instance tobacco and uh, the discovery of tobacco. It was discovered by Sir Walter Raleigh, you know, and he sent it over to England from the colonies. And uh, it seems to me the uses of tobacco aren't obvious right off the bat, you know. And I imagine a phone conversation between Sir Walter Raleigh and the head of the West Indies Company in, in England uh, explaining about the shipment of tobacco that he had just sent over. I, I think it would go something like this. Yeah, who, who is it, Mary? Sir Walter Raleigh from the colony. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, put him on, will you? Uh, uh, Harry? Yeah, you want to pick up the extension? It's, uh, it's Nutty Wall again. <laughs> Hi, hi, Walt, baby. How are you, guy? How's, how's everything going? I think things are fine here, Walt. Did we get the what? Uh, the boatload of turkeys. Yeah, they, they arrived fine, Walt. Uh-huh. Uh, as a matter of fact, they're still here, Walt. They're, they're wandering all over London, as a matter of fact. Uh-huh. See, that's, uh, that's an American holiday, Walt. Uh-huh. <laughs> But what is it this time, Walt? You, you got another winner for us, uh, do you? <laughs> tobacco. <laughs> What's tobacco, Walt? It, it's a kind of leaf. And you bought 80 tons of it. <laughs> uh, let me get this straight now, Walt. You, you bought 80 tons of leaves? This, uh, this may come as kind of a surprise to you, Walt, but uh, uh, come fall in England here, we're kind of up to our... Uh... It, it isn't that kind of leap. Uh, but what is it, a, a special food of some kind, is it, Walt? Not exactly. It has a lot of different uses. Uh, like, what are some of the uses, Walt? Are, are you saying snuff, Walt? What's, what's snuff? You, you take a pinch of tobacco. <laughs> and you shove it up your nose. 
<laughs> and it makes you sneeze, huh? <laughs> I, uh, I imagine it would, Walt, yeah. <laughs> See, uh, uh, Goldenrod seems to do it pretty well over here, Walt. Right? <laughs> it, it has some other uses, though. You, you can chew it. <laughs> or put it in a pipe, or, or you can shred it up and put it on a piece of paper and roll it up. <laughs> don't, don't tell me, Walt. Don't, don't tell me. <laughs> you, you stick it in your ear, right, Walt? <laughs> all, all between your lips. Well, uh, <laughs> then, then what do you do to it? Well, <laughs> you set fire to it, Walla. Uh, <laughs> then, then what do you do, Walla? Uh, you inhale the smoke. Uh, you know, Walt, it seems offhand like you can stand in front of your fireplace and have the same thing going for you, you know? <laughs> See, Walt, uh, we've been a little worried about you, you know? <laughs> Ever since you put your, your, your cape down over that mud, you know? <laughs> See, Walt, I, I think you're going to have kind of a tough time uh, uh, selling people on sticking burning leaves in their mouth. <laughs> it's going very big over there, is it? What's the matter, Walt? You spilt your what? Your coffee. What's, what's coffee, Walt? <laughs> that's, that's a drink you make out of beans, huh? <laughs> that, that's going over very big there, too, is it? A lot of people have the coffee right after their first cigarette in the morning, huh? Is that what you call a burning leaves, Walt? Cigarettes? Uh-huh. I'll tell you what, Walt. Why don't you send us a boatload of those beans, too? If you can talk people into putting those burning leaves in their mouth, they gotta go for those beans, Walt. <laughs> right. Listen, Walt. Don't call us, we'll call you. Right, Walt. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Take the highway, that's the best Get your kicks on Route 66 It winds from Chicago to L.A. More than 2,000 miles all the way Get your kicks on Route 66 Mighty pretty sea I'm a willow Gallup, New Mexico Flagstaff, Arizona Don't forget one owner Kingston, Boston San Bernardino Won't you get hit to this timely tip When you make that California trip Get your kicks on Route 66 Mama.
Alexander Zanjic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 